Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on the show is Dr. Nathan Sayre from University of California, Berkeley. He is a human geographer who also studies the management and ecology of rangelands. He's been active in the public rangelands conflicts in the Southwest for the last 25 years and has been a prolific writer over that time as well, producing both scholarly works and applied science grazing documents written for land managers. I've been studying rangelands with a focus on livestock production for about 20 years now, and some of my strongest held beliefs have come from reading Nathan's works. Uh, we met the first time in 2004 at a meeting of the Rangelands Partnership in Tucson. Uh, the Rangelands Partnership is a group of university range specialists and ag librarians uh, and a sponsor of this podcast. And Nathan delivered a lecture titled Prospects and Tools for Sustainable Ranching in the Western United States. That meeting was in 2004. I started with WSU as a range extension faculty member in 2003. And this was a, a really formative lecture for me. Uh, Nathan, you quoted Jim Corbett as saying that ranching is now the only livelihood that is based on human adaptation to wild biotic communities and noted that this inter interdependence of livelihood and landscape is critical. Uh, that, that concept is why I love my job. <laughs> then I, I read this 2017 book, Politics of Scale, A History of Rangeland Science, and I told Nathan in the invitation to come on the podcast that I, I read it like a Russian novel, cover to cover, over the course of about a week. Uh, people used to do that, you know, read novels. <laughs> I had concluded after 20 years in the range field that I had very few pat answers anymore, and the book confirmed my fears, and it really has affected my thinking on rangeland ecology and management more than anything else I've read in a while. That's that's pretty high praise and a long introduction. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for the introduction. That's very kind of you and, and uh, very consistent with my hopes for the book. Excellent. I joked with Dr. Lynn Hunsinger a couple of episodes ago that some listeners may be surprised to learn that anything good can come out of Berkeley. So this is a this is a one-two punch. Uh, <laughs> J.R. Tolkien has his characters refer periodically to help unlooked for, and I think sometimes the best help comes from the most unlikely people. And by unlikely, I don't mean that your scholarship is a personal surprise. I mean simply that ranchers are not expecting the best writing on range management to come from sociologists who come from University of California, Berkeley. Uh, no offense to range scientists who are not from Berkeley. So I'll, I'll let you start talking. How did you end up studying rangelands and range people as a geographer at UC Berkeley? Uh, I was already doing it when I got to Berkeley. I got here in 2004, that same year that um, we crossed paths in Tucson. I uh, how did I? I went to college for a couple of years when I was 18, 19 years old at a at a teeny little college in Eastern California in the desert called Deep Springs College, and that was a sort of falling in love with the desert experience for me. Um, the 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 air, the aridity, the the aesthetic beauty. Um, 
Then I spent two years in the in the Northeast in the in the gray, cloudy, slushy world. Um, by the time I finished college, I was tired of it. I wanted to get back to the desert. I moved to Tucson and I worked there for three years, mostly building barbed wire fence. Um, and I saw lots of beautiful places. I'd never been to the Sonoran Desert. I really fell in love with that landscape. And um, that was where I started to take a greater interest in ranching. Um, one of the places I was building barbed wire fence for was was a wildlife refuge that the federal government had bought just a few years previously. And they were busily buying new parcels, you know, adjacent private land parcels, uh, adding them to the refuge and then um, fencing, building barbed wire fence around these parcels to keep the cattle out because the sort of central premise of their management was to was to cease grazing this huge uh, former ranch. Um, and one day I happened to be taking a break at the nearby cafe and, and getting some lunch and I overheard a rancher at the neighboring table uh, complaining bitterly about the refuge. And, and I didn't interrupt or talk, you know, approach him at the time, but it began to be clear that there was a serious conflict, um, going on in the local community about this, about this ranch. Um, I eventually got tired of just building fence all the time and wanted to go back to graduate school and ended up at the university of Chicago in anthropology. Um, didn't really think I was going to uh, study this, but uh, a couple of other project ideas fell apart, and I ended up back in back in Tucson, back in that on that same refuge, and that's when I started talking to ranchers, asking them questions about their opposition to the refuge, and by the time I was done, I had um, sort of turned myself from an anthropologist into a geographer because a lot of the questions I had to pursue. Uh, were actually about either the history of the valley or the ecology of the valley, um, and actually the two of them were were intertwined. So that's the the story in a nutshell. Um, the I went down there thinking that the Fish and Wildlife Service had its story straight, and the ranchers were just angry because they didn't care for it. Um, and I had my views turned inside out um, by the by the field work. Uh, talking to the ranchers, they, their version of the story had to do with the history of the valley. I had to reconstruct the history. And by the time I was done, I realized that they had their story straighter than the feds. Uh, switching to the book, why did you write the book? This was a pretty large undertaking. I wrote the book because no one had ever written a book on this subject. And there was no scholarship that looked at it uh, thoroughly and comprehensively. Um, the history of rangeland ecology was um, not something that anyone had put together in a sort of thorough fashion. There were bits and pieces here and there, mostly written um, either by historians for agencies like the Forest Service, uh, usually about one specific site where they had done research, um, and a handful by range scientists that tended to be very celebratory, and um, even those were mostly out of date. Uh, there had been maybe one or two uh, more scholarly treatments sort of objective or uh, distance treatments. And the, the best one was more than 50 years old. And in conversations with people, I was routinely running into this question, sort of, how did we get this idea? Why do we believe that? Why did the Forest Service do this for decades and decades? And so um, it seemed like it needed to be done. I did sometimes wonder if there wasn't a reason why no one had done it, <laughs> because it's a topic that maybe is either not that interesting to people or is... Um, convoluted and lacks a sort of thread, a theme or a, a plot. But uh, that was that was the motivation. 
I realize we haven't talked much about the content yet, but I'm curious, what has been the response so far? Never having written a book, I don't know how much reaction you get, formal or informal. Um, the reaction has been quite positive, although, you know, not in, there aren't, you know, tens of thousands of people out there uh, beating down my door for, to talk about it. Um, I've heard back from uh, quite a few people. Um, some of them are ranchers. Many of them are uh, agency folks who, who have, have, you know, been pleased to sort of get the story that they sort of had a inkling of, but hadn't seen put all together in one place. Um, you know, scholars, geographers, people interested in um, rangelands, arid lands, the sort of politics of rangelands and pastoralism have have been very positive. Um, and we'll see. I mean, the thing about a book is you spend all this time researching it and then writing it, and then it takes a while to come out. And by the time it comes out, you're sort of exhausted. <laughs> and then you moved on. And yeah. then, and then, and then it usually is at least a year and a half or two years before the rest of the world has a chance to find it, read it, think about it, respond. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like there's a sudden burst, unless you're famous, which I'm not. So, Would you be willing to give kind of an overview of the, the big ideas and the chapters of the book, maybe before we start talking about a few of them, for those who have not seen it? So major themes. In the first chapter, I, I look at the role of uh, – pest control, uh, predator control, and rodent control uh, in the early development of the agencies of the federal government that, that eventually led to the creation of range science. Um, and I, the argument there is that, um, you know, the, the federal government in the Western United States in the late 19th century was, um, on the one hand, very powerful because it owned much of the land and it was sort of in charge of overseeing settlement and development of the West. On the other hand, it was quite powerless because it was an enormous uh, landscape. They did not have a lot of resources. Um, they didn't have a lot of people on the ground. They didn't know very much about the landscape. Um, and in fact, under the constitution at that time, their their legal authority was quite limited as well. The states were expected to do most of the, the sort of governing of these places. Um, and pretty much every place aspired to become a state as quickly as possible. Um, and one of the ways the federal government addressed this was through science and through the gathering of information by sending geologists to look for minerals and, and study the opportunities for mining, study surveyors to measure the land and create property boundaries and, and oversee the disposition of the land. Um, and at, over time, there were more and more sort of subspecialties of this. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture was interested, obviously, in, in agriculture and they saw a need to both um, help settlers settle and then also help settlers uh, prosper, succeed uh, in farming or whatever other agricultural pursuit they might take up. And so they and they were looking here both to help because um, that was what the government wanted. The policy was settlement, right? And also because it was a way of building constituencies. So you needed you needed to the USDA needed to have public support uh, to keep getting funding from Congress and things like that. And so one of the things they did was they discovered, you know, a lot of places there were issues of, of pests, um, insect pests, rodent pests, um, predators. Uh, sometimes they, these pest problems were created by the, by the arrival of the settlers, right? They, they created uh, by planting crops, they created food that attracted uh, 
rodents of various kinds um, by killing the prey species that were eating their crops, you know, maybe it was rabbits, they would create a problem with coyotes and then they'd have coyotes to contend with. And the agencies were in the business of, of trying to assess these problems and come up with solutions to them. And it turns out that this was a very important site for the early creation of the ideas that we came to think of as conservation later and that fixing these imbalances, um, by figuring out how to poison prairie dogs, for example, um, figuring out how to trap and get rid of predators. Um, those were the problematics out of which conservation emerged. And range science was one of these uh, conservation fields uh, in that, that also was born out of this kind of um, exterminationist zeal uh, in the Western U.S., yeah, that's interesting with regard to predator extermination. It seems like during that period of time, we as a culture were had the idea that nothing was impossible for us if we just tackled it hard enough. And you mentioned in the book that one of the prairie dog towns was um, 25,000 square miles, which if I'm doing my math right, was about 160 miles on a side in a square. That's that's a lot of prairie yeah. dogs. The idea, the audacity that there is even the remote possibility of getting rid of all those animals seems just unbelievably uh, audacious to me. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, and it and it was not easy. It did not happen quickly. And in fact, even to this day, there are prairie dog towns in the in the high plains, as you and I, you know, as you know, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, yeah, there was a notion that. Um, in the case of prairie dogs, they, they not only developed, you know, a, a fairly large toolkit of ways of getting rid of them, but they even went so far as to uh, get states and counties to pass ordinances that, that required landowners to let them come on, let the agencies come on their on private land and kill the prairie dogs. Because, of course, if you had prairie dogs on one property, chances were good that they would spread to the neighbors, even if the neighbors had gotten rid of theirs. So, yeah. Um, it was, yeah, it was, it's hard to put our minds in that situation, I think, and, and picture it. There was a, a sense of um, threats that had to be confronted uh, aggressively with whatever technologies and knowledge could be mustered. Um, there was not at this time an awareness of the interconnectedness of these pieces. Um, mm -hmm. If you killed all the jackrabbits, um, what were the coyotes going to eat? Well, they were probably going to start eating your chickens, right? Um, but that type of interaction was poorly understood at the time and, and in many cases not even considered. Mm -hmm. That thinking uh, applied more broadly than rangeland science into agriculture as well, where you know we, we use uh, very unselective chemicals that killed everything and that removes you know predator insect populations that are otherwise beneficial that hold – the pest species in check, uh, that, yeah. that problem was pretty widely applied. Yeah. I mean, I don't think many people realize that there was a time when it was considered um, just obvious that you should kill all the raptors around your, mm -hmm. um, you know, around your farm, you know, that, that uh, they were um, not only potential threats to say your, your chickens or other uh, things you were trying to raise, but that they were bad because they killed songbirds. Right. I mean, there was a time when the federal government in, engaged in systematic eradication efforts of hawks and eagles hmm. um, in the name of, uh, you know, protecting innocent songbirds. 
That's interesting. Uh, let's let's start with some definitions. You know, every every range textbook published prior to I don't know 1975 defined rangeland as the leftover pieces, as lands that don't have uh, a higher and better use. I guess to use economic language, that rubs most range people the wrong way. Uh, but you say there's some validity to that, and you say that we could legitimately define rangelands as non-forested places where intensive economic activities have not yet taken root. I really like that definition. Uh, but you also say those activities have not taken root for good reason, that rangelands are significant uh, not because they're vast, but because they resist the three major forces of the modern world, uh, the nation state, science, and capital. Uh, that was a that was a good hook, and it kept me reading for the next two hundred pages. Uh, there's some really big ideas in there, but I guess first that seems uh, a little bit cynical, but maybe it's realistic. Uh, I, I feel like it's kind of a social rather than a biological definition of range. But uh, one of the things that I've appreciated about your work is that you you meld these two components in recognition that in the real world social and ecological dimensions are really inseparable. Yeah, it certainly wasn't intended to be cynical. Um, I mean, there are other ways of defining rangeland, and, and some of them are long lists, right? You have savannas and grasslands and deserts and tundra, and um, the list goes on. Um, and before you're done, you have basically described everything except what <laughs> is forest or cropland or urban or covered in ice. Um, yeah. And to that extent, it seems to me just reasonable to turn it around and say, well, this is this is the category. This is how we describe this very diverse range of landscapes um, that are, you know, what they have in common is basically what they lack, right? They They lack forests, they lack buildings, they lack crops, and they lack ice. Otherwise, um, it's pretty much anything. And mm -hmm. that isn't cynical so much as a recognition that, um, you know, the way we categorize land and, and land cover is a social construct that reflects our, our sense of priorities and interests. Um, I don't think a, I don't think a rancher would ever, you know, simply bundle it all together, lump together tundra and grassland and savanna and desert and say it's all the same. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't ranchers who are describing who are coming up with these categories. Um, and in many ways, what we have learned and uh, what has finally come to be recognized is that um, these different types of rangelands are, in fact, very, very different. And and you can't just come up with a recipe for managing rangelands and then apply it to all of them as though they all behave the same. Yeah. In that same section, you mentioned that rangelands probably have more similarity to oceans. And in fact, rangeland grazing may be more similar to ocean um, fishing than than anything uh, you know more traditionally agricultural yeah uh, and that seems like that's related to uh, how rangelands resist these yeah. these three major forces yeah um, how they resist I think the first the first thing that they do is they simply um, exhaust our uh, capacity to uh, see them and pin them down you can't right get a handle I, on it yeah yeah i mean it, it, how much how much time and energy and money and effort is are is any society willing to put into 
uh, gathering information about space, right? And land in general is a lot easier to gather information about than the ocean. Um, but it's still high. It depends a lot. It depends on the, on the weather and the, the, or the climate. It depends on the topography. It depends on what you're trying to gather information for. And if there is a lot of significance per unit area, so to speak, or per unit effort, then it's worth it, right? Mm -hmm. It's worth doing a careful study of the soil if you think you can grow crops that will be very valuable. Uh, it's worth studying the geology carefully if you think there are minerals that you can mine and, and those are very valuable. Um, rangelands tend to be the places that are the least valuable per unit of space or area, per unit of effort to understand them. Um, they tend to be, um, therefore, not worth the effort, uh, at least in the eyes of your typical player, whether that's uh, a government agency or an investor or a capitalist thinking about trying to make um, make an investment to modify a, a landscape. Um, as for the nation state, um, these are also landscapes that, you know, uh, it's difficult to patrol them. It's difficult to uh, make the territory behave in the way that nation states like their territory to behave. They like to be able to map it. They like to be able to uh, inventory it. They like to be able to control the people within their territory, uh, collect taxes from them, for example. Um, and rangelands have, have for thousands of years been places where people uh, have got a lot of opportunity to elude that type of control. And resistance to capital uh, in in my conversation with Fred Provenza a while back, he said that it gets really expensive to fight nature. Uh, is that what you're getting at? Are you referring more to, uh, I guess, a you know a secondary level of of economics where, um, like with the the easy capital, easy credit that was partly responsible for the the crash and the cattle boom in the late 1800s? Yeah. Yeah, um, it's 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 related. It includes what what Fred was referring to, I think, but it, it's not only that. Um, it resists not simply by, um, well, let's put it this way: fight fighting nature can be very expensive because um, you have sort of done some kind of damage and you it, you now need to fix it, and it's very expensive. But I mean this in a in a more basic sense. Um, what does capital want from a piece of land? C capital wants to know that if it makes an investment, it will get a return, right? And that return is usually measured over time. Um, most people building buildings want, you know, they imagine it's going to be 25 or 30 years, maybe 50 years. If you're building a mm -hmm. dam, you might think 100 years. Um, and the idea here is that you probably are borrowing money, somewhere along the line at some point to, to make that investment and you're going to have to repay the loan. And that's the easiest way to think about how this works out over time. You can't repay the loan unless you come up with a certain amount of revenue every year to, to make the payments. Um, and in a lot of cases, what rangelands do is, you know, they'll, they'll cooperate with you, so to speak, you know, three years out of five or seven years out of 10. Um, there'll be enough rain, you'll get enough grass, you'll, you know, the market will be good enough, you, you can make the, make the payments on your loan. But then there will be those years when it doesn't rain or something else happens and 
you suddenly don't have what you need to repay the loan. And that's, that's what I think is key about um, rangelands and their, their sort of failure to cooperate with the expectations of capital and, and capitalists. Um, when rangelands have been readily available and full of grass, um, people have, have jumped on them and put lab stock on them and made lots of money. And the capitalists have gotten very excited about that. Um, but the, the grass doesn't grow every year, uh, at least not the same amount. And if it doesn't rain and you've got a lot of animals out there, you can, you can lose all of them very quickly as people found out. Um, so that that's what I'm getting at, and it's the variability. It's the unpredictability and the variability, mm-hmm. um, as much as anything else. Um, I mean, look at look at places like the Imperial Valley and the Central Valley, um, large parts of the of the southwestern deserts. It's there's not enough rainfall, or the rainfall is not consistent enough for farming. But if you can put an irrigation system in there, and get reliable water, mm-hmm. they are incredibly productive because it's hot. And the sunshine is very reliable, and because the soils are actually, in many cases, quite fertile, if you if you can find the water, um, and in a sense, what you do then is you fix the problem until you tap out your aquifer, and then you've got a problem mm-hmm. that's even worse than you started with. I want to get around to several big ideas that really affected me. Affected me because I think it's something that we've been missing. Um, it, Neil Postman says in his famous book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death," that in, in both Oral and typographic cultures, information derives its importance from the possibilities of action. And one of the things that I have appreciated about what you write is that it always makes me think differently in ways that make me act differently. Uh, The content is not trivial, which is what academics are often accused of. And just so I don't forget to come back to some of these big ideas, um, what I'm hoping we can make time to discuss briefly is the idea that variability in rangelands is a uh, a bigger factor than than even aridity in shaping plant communities. Um, a discussion of carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. Some the idea of property rights and different methods methods of pastoralism, which wasn't so much a focus of the book as I guess kind of the, the inverse of some of the issues with property rights. Uh, community succession models, fire, and we've talked about predator control some. Uh, but going back to variability, there's a, fr- there's a phrase that you use in the introduction that probably more than any other has stuck with me, and I think I've referenced referenced it a dozen times in discussing these things, even on the podcast. I think Karen Longebaugh is jealous that I quote you all the time and not her. But you say rangelands are defined more by their variability than by their aridity, and I live in the inland northwest where. You know, we have enough winter precipitation that's fairly reliable that that we can rely on. <clears throat> I guess the the range of variability from year to year is not like what we see. Uh, I think east of the Rocky Mountains, where they're relying on growing season precipitation, and it tends to be uh, more flashy. Mm-hmm. But but still, even in the Northwest, rangeland forage production is still driven by by how much rain we get in the you know the the first three quarters of the growing season of April through June, more so than whether we had two feet of snow or none, uh, you know, the end of January. Mm-hmm. And I'm narrating some of what I think I've learned, and you can tell me if I'm getting it right. So range vegetation changes in response to sort of unpredictable combinations of both biotic and abiotic factors. 
And that's a stronger driver than livestock grazing, at least above some threshold of grazing severity and and you know severity stacked up over time in a pattern that we could call overgrazing. Is am I getting that right? Uh, yes, except it would be below that threshold, right? The, yeah, yeah. There, in other words, there you can graze to the point where the livestock grazing is is strongly affecting the vegetation dynamics, but by and large. Uh, below that threshold, uh, the dynamics are driven by abiotic forces. Um, I mean, th- these are things that have now become uh, widely accepted in the rangeland ecology community, but uh, as I think you mentioned by email, not not well known in the general public. Um, the the variability is important not just for vegetation, but I think more more broadly. Um, so many people have written books about the history of the American West and the fact that beyond the hundredth meridian to use Wallace Stegner's famous phrase, um, there's not enough reliable rainfall or the, the rainfall is not reliable enough, um, for, for people to f- make a living farming. And this mm-hmm. is, so aridity has become this kind of talisman for Western American history and explanations of Western American settlement. Um, but of course, what does that mean? It means that it, it wasn't so much that it was less than 20 inches a year on average that mattered to those farmers. It was that some years there was 25 inches of rain and they thought they were doing great. Mm-hmm. And then another year there'd be eight inches of rain or 12 inches of rain. And it was those bad years that would, um, drive them under and force them, you know, sort of dash their hopes for settlement and, and the sort of Jeffersonian model of, um, agrarian American democracy. Um, so it was the variability, not the aridity. And the more I've looked, you know, thought about this, the more I thought we should be focusing on variability. We can get used to something if it's reliable, even if it's dry, right? But if it's variable, it's a different kind of problem. And this is something, um, we're dealing with all the time now. Uh, you know, wildfire seasons are a product of variability, right? As much as they're a product of temperature or Mm -hmm. aridity. Um, Floods, that's about variability. Um, These are the kinds of events that shock a a landscape or a community and uh, may cause lasting change. Uh, How does that change work? And this is where the vegetation story is is really important. Um, The idea that vegetation change is somehow predictable has been central to uh, ecology, central to policies about how we manage land and and indeed how we manage wildlife and other uh, biotic resources. And that faith um, was built from observations made in places where the where the climate was less variable. They made in mm-hmm. places like eastern Nebraska, where sure there are dry years and wet years, but the variation is not such that it completely changes the vegetation uh, and and alters things on a kind of lasting basis. Um, as Frederick Clements famously realized, in a wetter year, you get more tall grasses. In a drier year, you get more short grasses in a place like central Nebraska. Um, but you still get grass and you still mm-hmm. don't have a lot of erosion. Um, so when we came further west into more arid and more variable landscapes, and by the time you get to Southern California, the variability is extraordinary. Um, these ideas didn't make sense of the vegetation, but by that point we had built them into a lot of our policies, a lot of our ideas and expectations about how vegetation change happens. Um, 
and I, I guess I feel like I, I came to understand this in, in Southern Arizona where you have two rainy seasons. You have a winter rainy season and a summer rainy season. Either one can be good or, or almost non-existent in a given year. It's warm enough for plants to grow year round. So they both are growing season precipitation, uh, you know, periods. Uh, and what you start to notice is that what grows in any given month or year, uh, changes pretty much randomly from one year to the next. Um, not completely randomly, but like there are a whole bunch of different plants that could grow well. And it will depend on, did it rain in February? Did it rain in March? Did it rain in April? Did it not rain last October will have an mm -hmm. effect. And in other words, the notion that there's some kind of succession, a, a sort of stable pathway the vegetation will always be somewhere on this neat spectrum and that if you alter it, it will then just resume its sort of evolution towards its climax. Um, that idea, which Frederick Clements made so famous and, and on which a lot of um, plant ecology was built, uh, simply doesn't apply. And it's taken us a very long time to, to come to recognize that. Um, I think, I think ranchers have figured that out, uh, much more readily than than scientists or uh, policymakers, by and large. Right. Yeah. One of the conclusions of that, I think, is that especially in the West, the ecological effects of grazing can vary uh, depending on the scale at which you choose to examine them. That's a quote yeah. from page thirty of the book. Uh, you say that the seemingly simple act of a domestic animal grazing all are part of a plant can have wildly different impacts, beneficial, benign, or destructive, depending on when it occurs, how much is grazed, how soon it happens again, and the larger historical and geographical context in which it takes place, end quote. Uh, you then say that, that there's two uh, conceits that informed range science from the beginning. The first one is that uh, range scientists believe that range livestock producers, ranchers, did not know how to manage their own herds and land properly. And uh, the second conceit is that uh, scientific methods that tend to be reductionist could produce the knowledge that we need to manage well. And then you know, adding insult to injury, there's probably a number of bad assumptions underneath even those. Mm -hmm. uh, but just with regard to scientific method, the first one is that we can, the idea that we can accurately tease out or identify causality using quantitative reductionist methods. Uh, I've said for years that the big problem with any kind of natural resource research is that uh, you can't you can't get to ceteris paribus. You can't hold everything constant except for the one variable you want to test. So we uh, you know, we reduce the the spatial scale of research to the size of a desk, and then try to extrapolate that to a hundred thousand acres. Yeah. And I guess the second bad assumption is assuming that whatever results we get right here are going to hold true in every other context, you know, other than the one that we did the research in. Yeah, I I completely agree, um, and that is a central thesis of the book is that. Um, on the one hand, you have managers, you know, ranchers and agencies working at, at large scales, right? They've got, um, you know, they're trying to make decisions about landscapes of 20,000, 50,000, or several hundred thousand acres. Um, 
that's a very different thing from the scale at which a scientist can do an experiment, generally speaking. Uh, most of the experiments that the, that the range science community has been able to do in a controlled, replicable kind of way have employed plots or transects and rarely have extended, you know, the, 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 the sort of, uh, the extent of the project has rarely been more than maybe several hundred acres uh, or a thousand acres, and usually not for more than three years, five years, ten years would be a would be considered a very long experiment. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's a disconnect there between the scale of management, the scale of the research, that has plagued the the discipline and also plagued the politics of Western rangelands um, for more than a hundred years now. So it's not rocket science. It's a lot more complex than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, where did that where did that come from? Was that uh, were those two conceits that you list uh, the logical endpoint of a couple hundred years of enlightenment rationalism? Or was it just uh, kind of the the hubris of the age? Any ideas on that? Um I mean, the first conceit was descriptively not wrong at the time, right? You put yourself in 1885, 1890, 1900, and most of the white U.S. citizen settlers in the Western United States were newcomers. They hadn't been there long. Um, most of them came from places with very different uh, ecosystems and, and uh, soils and climates and so forth. Um, and so it wasn't unrealistic to sort of look at them and say, maybe they don't know what they're doing. Um, they, they weren't, right. they weren't necessarily even livestock producers before they got to the West. Right. Um, the second conceit was, yes, was an outgrowth of, um, the enlightenment and the kind of, uh, hubris or, or confidence that, uh, sort of U S success and, and growth and prosperity and exceptionalism had generated, um, confidence that the, that the tools of science, um, marshaled, uh, under the, you know, in a, in a democratic governing, uh, entity like the USDA, um, would figure out the solutions to problems more efficiently and more effectively than um, than other types of methods. Now, that presupposes the effectiveness of science, as you say. You know, how do you get to to everything else is equal um, in a landscape with so many variables and so much variability? Um, it also give those give those livestock producers four or five generations to learn how to ranch or how to raise livestock on a particular piece of land, um, chances are they're going to, they're going to figure some things out that will uh, make that first conceit no longer true. But then if you, because of the threshold problem, if you make a big enough mistake at some point, you have a punctuated change toward a degraded landscape that maybe then you can't recover from in a short time frame. True. True, and that's and that's been an issue in much of the southwestern U.S. and and other places as well. Um, but it's also, I mean, you asked in the email about you know issues of desertification or instances of desertification in other parts of the world. Um, you should get Diana Davis on the program and interview her about her book. Um, it, it it turns out that um, 
when somebody walks into a landscape and says, this is degraded, um, <laughs> on the one hand, it might be that they are saying something true about the landscape. On the other hand, they might be just telling you something about themselves and how they see the landscape, um, mm -hmm. especially if it's one they haven't had a great deal of familiarity with previously. And the notion that um, the livestock of uh, pastoralists and nomads in various parts of the world, um, particularly around the Mediterranean, but in other places as well, the notion that those livestock um, permanently destroyed the, you know, the lush, bountiful ecosystems of those areas from previous centuries um, turns out to say a lot more about the observer than about the landscape, or at least there's a good chance. Um, and, and that's where Diana Davis can give you the the full story, but, um, it's, it's a power play to show up and tell somebody that they have screwed up their landscape. Right. Um, and, and it can be done in a way that makes it sound like you're, you're just trying to speak for their own interests and, and the good of the landscape. But in many instances that hasn't been, um, in retrospect, what was, what was going on? Yeah. With that, with that comment, I was thinking of, uh, Walter Loudermilk's report, I think, from the 1940s yeah. of a survey he did across the Middle East and parts of Africa where, uh, you know, where we believe that agriculture had collapsed. And I think you know, he's considered the, I guess, the father of the uh, Soil Conservation Service. He was certainly one of the first heads of the SES. Uh, but because of that and, and other things that we, that we read or hear, you know, I've held as an a self-evident truth that much of the Eastern Hemisphere had been grazed uh, too hard competitively for thousands of years. You know, when you think about uh, Garrett Hardin's tragedy of the commons, we often think of, or I think of, sort of a, a pastoralist system where you have a commons where it's first come, first serve, and that that automatically leads to degradation. And I think that idea in my own head is I'm trying to untangle through some of what you wrote. I actually have quite a bit of faith in indigenous peoples, at least in their land management practices. And uh, one of the things that you said, I think maybe in the essay from the Rangelands Partnership meeting back in Tucson, is that the word sustainability is somewhat of a, a tautology, at least if you look at it on a long enough temporal scale. That which persists must be sustainable, and that which is sustainable persists. Um, you know, we're, you answered some of the question, were, were reports of damage in other parts of the world exaggerated? And part of that's our own perspective. You know, but it, the person who's the if, – if somebody were here to defend what the United States did in terms of trying to advise other parts of the world. Do you, in your own opinion, do you think there are range problems out there that can be helped by modern range science or, or could be helped? And, and where are those limits? Um, there definitely are places where the, the resources that Western range science can bring to bear can be extremely useful in addressing rangeland problems and issues. Um, the, the, the recipes of range science as they were formulated in the first half of the 20th century and then applied in much of the second half of the 20th century, I would say uh, those recipes often produced way more problems than they solved. Um, 
right now, there's a great example of a, of a long-term collaboration going on in Mongolia between uh, range scientists, both at the Hornada Experimental Range in Las Cruces and also um, Colorado State University in Fort Collins. Uh, that's an example, I think, of, of range science um, genuinely doing what we what needs to be done in the way of engaging with the people living and using uh, those lands, living on and using those lands, um, the policymakers who affect those landscapes and those people uh, through their decisions, um, and recognizing that, yes, there's the potential for damage, but there is also the potential for sustainable livelihoods through livestock production on rangelands. Um, and those are landscapes that have been grazed by domesticated livestock for seven, eight, nine thousand mm -hmm. years, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, you mentioned Garrett Hardin. I mean, the that parable that he made famous uh, goes way back. It's not he didn't come up with it himself. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, as an empirical matter, um, wildly untrue about the way most rangelands uh, were managed and used for most of human history. Um, it's only it only applies if you have a certain kind of people mm -hmm. who are ready to keep adding livestock no matter what, um, even up to the point where they're destroying that that resource, right? Um, mm -hmm. wh why is it that in a variable system, abiotic drivers are more important than biotic drivers? You know, which is the the new wisdom or or the the new knowledge we have about highly variable landscapes. Well, in one sense, it's because if if you have too many livestock, they die when it stops raining. Right. And there are natural consequences. Yeah. Too. And, yeah. And 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 so high mortality during drought. Uh, and then what happens? Well, you don't get animals back on that landscape. Um, from the natural reproduction of the surviving animals until years have passed and probably the rains have returned. And, you know, the mother cows aren't going to get pregnant and have calves until they've got some nutrition. So it might be quite a while before you've got grazing pressure back up on that landscape, unless the people you're talking about can go someplace else and buy more animals and bring them in. Right. Mm -hmm. Right, they didn't buy 500 tons of hay to supplement their exactly. lack of forage. Exactly, and and in many ways, it's to say that Garrett Hardin's thesis only works in a society with um, a profit motive that overrides sort of common common sense and mm -hmm. a, a system that allows people to keep adding cattle or keep adding livestock um, even when the, there's no forage left. Um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. The problems are much more are much more severe in terms of that thesis. But it, it has an intuitive logic for those of us in in this society where we right. are we're accustomed to that type of behavior, that kind of selfish behavior. Um, and so we think of it as perfectly logical and obvious. Um, but it, it really there, there's also there's fascinating new research um, being done in places like Africa and Asia um, by mostly by archaeologists working closely with a variety of paleoecologists and other scientists. And they have started to be able to reconstruct the effects of livestock um, from thousands of years ago um, on landscapes that were grazed by nomadic pastoralists, right? Landscapes where the animals would move around all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and they might have a very 
pronounced impact on a on a small space for a brief period of time and then move someplace else and not come back for a while. Um, those are not impacts that are easy to detect, but the, the, the methods now exist to detect them. And, and by and large, what we're discovering, the evidence suggests that um, these animals did no damage uh, and in some cases actually benefited landscapes um, or benefit, benefited vegetation and soils in uh, locations where they congregated for periods of time over, over centuries and millennia. Um, so the, the notion that, that, the, uh, that the sort of default assumption about livestock grazing is that it's damaging to ecosystems is, is simply false. Um, of course, it depends on the, on the landscape and the ecosystem, and it depends on how these animals are grazed. Um, but it's, it's wrong to assume that there's some kind of um, unavoidable contradiction between grazing and the sustainability of a landscape. Right. Pastoralism intrigues me, and this is probably my own ignorance, but listening to you talk, I'm thinking back on some conversations with Karen Longebaum and Floyd Reed and Fred Provenza and Kirk Davies about grazing rules of thumb. And we, we pile on these uh, you know, list of factors that we need to apply in order to make grazing sustainable. And it feels like most of those are mimicking what happens naturally in uh, transhumans pastoralism, where you're trying to limit the duration of the grazing period. Well, that's accommodated by animals moving on after they've been in a spot for a, a week or two. Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to, uh, we say that we need to make sure that there's growing season regrowth for plants before animals come back to graze that same spot. That's also addressed there. Uh, you know, limiting the severity of of uh, of grazing is maybe not so critical as long as you have a long period of time before the animals come back. Uh, any other thoughts on what sustainable pastoralism looks like on where you have uh, shared lands? You know, it's easy enough to see how that's sustainable if you only have a single user or a single herd. But in places where you've got multiple herds using the same places, but still following that same pattern. Uh, how do cultures keep that from still being too much? There are a lot of different examples and a lot of, it, it's, it's a little difficult to generalize um, and sort of okay. reduce it to a single answer. Uh, there are places where there are, um, you know, pretty elaborate systems of rules uh, that, uh, you know, that are uh, applied and enforced by a community of people. And that community is, is, you know, if not rigidly defined, it's, it's understood sort of who's in this community and um, people who aren't in the community are in various ways excluded from using the resource. But there are some fascinating examples as well, where the, where the resource is there and there, the rule insofar as there is a rule is basically that anyone can use it. Um, and that can uh, that can apply um, beyond the boundaries of a particular uh, village or ethnic group or, or community. Um, how does it work? Well, in a lot of ways, it's it's as simple as you just suggested. Um, why, if you're a grazer, if you're a, a herder or a pastoralist, why would you want to keep your animals in a place where there was either no water or no forage? It's not good for the animals. It's not good for the animals. And right. um, to that extent, you will use a resource if there is forage and water. 
and it, if there is no forage and water, you will move someplace else and uh, and not mm-hmm. try to not try to keep your animals alive there. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out that uh, that is a that is an arrangement that can that can work, um, particularly if you're dealing with a, a, a landscape that. There's a famous place in uh, in Chad, I believe, where there's a a great big floodplain that floods seasonally, and it's basically flat, and the the floodwaters deposit sediment and restore the fertility, and the and the forage growth is quite abundant, um, provided that the flood the floodwaters uh, are sufficient, and that's a landscape where. You know, there's either going to be a whole bunch of forage and water, uh, and a lot of people will bring their animals and utilize it, um, particularly when the in the dry season when other parts of the landscape are not green. Um, and, but if you know, once that forage is utilized and it dries out, uh, or if it doesn't get a good year's worth of flooding, it um, they won't go there; they'll go someplace else. Um, and that I don't know. That's a sort of simple answer, or it sounds too simple. Um, but it, but it has worked in many places for, uh, again, thousands of years um, prior to the onset of what we consider to be, um, well, prior to the onset of commercial livestock production. I guess that mm-hmm. that's what it comes down to. Um, if you switch the motive, driving production to a, one of profit rather than one of um, subsistence, you've got very different dynamics to contend with at that point. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the projects that that I've been working on, along with uh, Matt Ziegler, the audio technician that you never hear on the podcast, has been a, a series of short case study documentary films on ranches in the Pacific Northwest who are managing for rangeland resilience. And one of the economic pieces that that has kind of fallen out of that uh, is is that where you have high ecological resilience and healthy rangelands, uh, there's a direct tie to healthy economics. That tends to be profitable in lots of different ways, not only because you know, if, if you use the land lightly, you end up with uh, you know, a, a, a forage production buffer if you're not using everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also there are significant animal health benefits uh, where animals have access to a, a, a wide array of plants you know Fred Provenza would say it's a, a natural pharmacy yeah and it's it's been shown that those ranchers that manage for a highly diverse landscape have lower uh, lower pharmaceutical costs because animals are just healthier mm-hmm. there's a, a direct tie between ecology and economy that is a pretty big deal yeah Brandon Bestelmeyer and uh, Rhonda Skaggs have seen this in uh, southern New Mexico with BLM permits. Um, if you just look at the at the frequency with which a permit changes hands, which is almost always because of the base property cells, um, mm-hmm. you'll find that the 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 permits and land on allotments where the vegetation is more degraded, turn over more quickly than the permits on you know where the land is mm-hmm. is in better condition. Um, very similar kind of idea. I want to transition to a quick discussion of carrying capacity because this was something that blew my socks off and that doesn't happen every day. You show that carrying capacity was a shipping term, yeah. but carrying capacity has been the fundamental principle of uh, ecology, not just grazing management. How do we get from a term used to talk about a ship's cargo capacity above the weight of the ship to an ecological 
bedrock principle that seems to be through all of uh, at least the natural sciences. You know, it's a it's an intricate, complicated story, and I I can't summon the, all the details straight from memory. Um, By the book? We, well, no, actually, there's an article. <laughs> there's an article that came out earlier that um, tells the story in even more detail. Um, I, it, it's one of these ideas that moved around. It traveled among different fields, different areas of of uh, scientific and scholarly inquiry. Uh, beginning, well, basically the the second half of the 19th century. Um, It was coined not just in shipping, but a specific moment in the history of shipping when steamships were displacing sailing sailing vessels. Um, Sailing vessels had always been um, assessed tariffs and and duties based on how much cargo they could carry. Um, And that was something that was just a fixed number for the hull of the boat, right? It had a certain volume. Mm -hmm. And so that was how much tax it had to pay uh, every time it came into port. Steamships messed up that system because, of course, the inside of a of the hull of a steamboat has got to have a whole bunch of space dedicated to the the, the actual um, you know engine itself, but also to the area where you keep all the coal and the area where you keep all the fresh water. Um, so there's a whole bunch of volume in that hull that is not available for cargo, and the and the people who owned these steamships. Uh, complained to the governments of these different countries that it wasn't fair to assign tariffs and duties on the entire volume of their hulls because so much of the hull wasn't available for hauling cargo. And so that's when mm. they, they coined the term carrying capacity, not just to, to signify cargo, but to signify cargo net of the stuff that went along with the boat. Um, and so this was actually about trade and tariffs and trade policy. Now, once that concept was in use and traveling around and available and something about the alliteration, I think, made it roll off people's tongues. It found its way into other applications. And um, so it found its way into engineering. People started talking about the carrying capacity of trains, the carrying capacity of of, um, canals and aqueducts, the carrying capacity of um, electrical systems, sort of how much current could a wire carry uh, how much uh, current could a lightning um, rod absorb safely? Um, and all of these were were engineered systems in which you could you could sort of calculate um, the capacity of some thing you were making um, to do some task or carry some load that that it was intended to carry. Um, and this all made us you know that in in that context these types of calculations could be could be fairly uh, reliably quantified and measured and even tested, right? Um, But then it started getting applied in other contexts. It got applied to how much uh, weight a mule could carry or a pack train. It it even got applied to how much weight a a human being could carry um, as as he climbed out of a mine, for example. Um, and subsequently, it got applied in the in the biological sciences. Uh, how much water could a could a vein in a cucumber plant carry? Uh, um, it got applied to. Uh, eventually, it got applied to rangelands. And but this all came up because I started asking uh, colleagues. You know, when range science begins, and mostly it's about the 1890s, you start seeing mm-hmm. sort of official. Pro- documented publications about range science and everyone just uses carrying capacity right from the very beginning 
And they don't pause to sort of ask, well, what is this concept or what does it mean? They just use it um, as if it's common knowledge. And, and that was a puzzle to me. And it was in courtesy of a research assistant who, who dug down and found all these earlier uses that I was able to piece together this story. Um, eventually you end up using it to describe systems that are not humanly controlled or engineered systems that are not even very easily bounded or defined and systems that, um, where, where an average is not the same thing as, as an actual, um, capacity, right? It's just a, it's just a calculated artifact. Um, the, the, the average of a bunch of numbers over, over years. Um, but it, it was interpreted as if it was kind of like the carrying capacity of your pickup truck, right? Um, mm -hmm. it's fixed somehow and it, and it doesn't change when in fact, what we now know about rangelands, how many animals that piece of rangeland can support is going to change dramatically from year to year and season to season. Uh, you make the statement in the book that ranching is the most ecologically sustainable segment of the country's beef industry, yet it is also the most economically marginal and historically the most vilified by environmentalists. Uh, why is it the most vilified? I think it's because of the circumstance that so much of it is public land. Right. It's, mm. it's the public lands ranching in particular that has earned the ire over the decades of, of the environmental community. Um, and it goes back to the 1940s. Uh, there was a period of time when uh, much much like the Sagebrush Rebellion later, um, the ranching community in the West uh, mounted an effort lobbying Congress, trying to get Congress to turn the federal public lands over to the states or the counties or even to privatize them. And Bernard DeVoto, who was a very influential editor for Harper's, um, wrote a series of columns that really sort of outed them for their apparent greed and their desire to sort of strip the patrimony of the of the country um, out of the hands of the of the public and and use it for private gain. And that really is the um, a moment that's a very important moment in the history of what we now call environmentalism. Uh, it predates the term environmentalism, but it had a very strong influence, and it and it set the sort of playing field for uh, conflicts between environmentalists and the ranching community, uh, really for the rest of the 20th century. Um, if you go back further, you can find, of course, you know Upton Sinclair vilifying the 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 beef processing slaughterhouse industry in the very mm -hmm. early 20th century but upton sinclair wasn't doing it as an environmentalist right he was actually doing it as a labor activist and he was concerned mm -hmm. about the way the the people were being treated and about the safety of the food that was coming out of those of those uh, factories um and so the the ranching community was really not relevant and and in many ways, even the, um, the feeding, there really weren't feedlots at that point either. So, um, mm -hmm. it's, it, you know, in a lot of ways, the battle today has changed significantly just in the last 20 years. Um, thankfully, um, you know, in 1990, it was still basically the same battle lines that Bernard DeVoto helped to draw in the 1940s. Um, ranchers and environmentalists just detested each other and distrusted each other. Um, thankfully, uh, in the 20 years since then, uh, nearly 30 years now, um, the the battle lines have really been dramatically redrawn. And uh, in much of the West, um, 
many ranchers, not all, but many ranchers and many environmentalists, again, not all of them, um, have, have realized that they've got a lot to gain working together. And, um, in many ways, because of their shared interest in not letting rangelands be converted to more intensive economic purposes. And th this circles back to the beginning of our conversation, mm -hmm. right? Um, it turns out that if you can keep rangelands in rangelands, um, chances are that you're going to, it's going to be a benefit from an environmental perspective, a conservation perspective for all kinds of things, for, for wildlife, for, um, biotic diversity, vegetation, communities, uh, water. Um, mm -hmm. And in many ways, the best way, in many places, you can't keep that land in rangeland unless you also keep somebody uh, in business making a livelihood from that rangeland. And um, it also turns out that, you know, many of our most important lands, uh, rangelands from a biological point of view, are privately owned. And those private landowners have got um, a great deal of power slash uh, influence slash discretion to to make decisions that will benefit or not benefit um, those biological resources. Um, and I also am of the opinion by now that uh, most of the ranchers who have been in the business, you know, for multiple generations. Um, if they don't know how to do it at least reasonably well, they have long since gone out of business and, and mm -hmm. disappeared. Um, the, the, the first conceit about ranchers not knowing what they're doing is, is, uh, is not true anymore. Uh, although of course there are places where newcomers have stepped into the business and they may or may not know what they're doing. I wanted to, to ask, you mentioned that the, the tide seems to have turned with regards to the, the debates or the at least some of the animosity between ranchers and environmentalists, and I, I agree with that, and I feel some of that locally. I think they tend to agree. Ranchers and environmentalists tend to agree on what the end goal is, you know, which I would articulate as healthy, you know, native or naturalized plant communities, and they sometimes differ over the means to get there, but but largely agree. Um, in writing the book, what did you find that was the most surprising or interesting or encouraging in your research? Um, surprising, I guess there were some interesting details in the history of the forest service that I was found quite surprising. And I was, I was startled by, um, the candid recognition in the 1920s that, um, that if they really wanted to prevent forest fires, the best way to do it was to let was to make sure that people were grazing livestock pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and the, and then they came pretty close to saying, okay, we're just gonna, you know, in the name of stopping fires, we're actually going to make overgrazing into something that we consider, a consider a, a normal part of our management strategy. Right. Um, yeah. so that was one surprise. I was also a little surprised by the candor with which the scientists in the forest service, um, in the 1940s, for example, um, the candor with which they would admit to each other, to among themselves, that they really didn't know what the carrying capacity of these lands was. That they that they could try to measure it, but they really didn't think they could get closer than maybe plus or minus 20 percent. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, and of course they never said that publicly and they never said that to the, to the ranching community. And if they had, it would have been a, it would have really changed the debate, right? Because <laughs> oftentimes they were having pitched battles with ranchers over much smaller adjustments in stocking rates than that. Um, so that was surprising. As far as hopeful, um, I really do, the hope I find is very much in what's happened in the last 20 or 25 years. Um, courtesy of efforts um, like the Malpai Borderlands Group and like um, countless other um, community-based conservation efforts that have that have grown up uh, around a kind of a, alliance among uh, ranchers and environmentalists, agency folks, scientists, um, sometimes just ordinary residents in, in rural parts of the West um, who are concerned about the threats to the landscape that they share and that they um, love. And that has, a you know, it's still a very difficult nut to crack in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, but at least it gets the conversation focused on not people's sort of myths and imaginations and sort of cliches about um, the condition of a, of a landscape and, but focused on what can we really do here? What are we, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's a realistic um, ambition for, for this area? What can we do together? Um, where can we agree to disagree and leave those issues, you know, sort of for the future perhaps um, and really set about um, preventing the kinds of uh, fragmentation and intensification land use change that, um, that we know will change the, the fabric of this, of this landscape and this community. Um, and, and those efforts I think are, are a very useful and long overdue corrective um, both to the sort of uh, the, the, the log jam and, and animal, animosity of the of the earlier fights between ranchers and environmentalists and and also useful correctives to the to the hubris of of scientists and agencies um the 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 forest service Mm -hmm. you know i i have got a great deal of sympathy for the difficulties of um the challenges that the forest service has faced but um their track record in managing the the nation's rangelands over the last hundred years is really nothing, uh, you know, they're not infallible. Let's just put it that way. Um, sure. And, and I, I hope that the book has helped to just sort of put that, put some of those details, some of those stories out there so that we can all just get over it. Um, right. Because just because people made mistakes, you know, 25, 100 years ago, um, doesn't mean that they weren't trying to do the right thing and doesn't mean that um, the people – working on these problems today uh, can't do better. On that note, did you learn anything that you feel uh, demands action today by land managers? You know, someplace where we're still getting it wrong, where something significant needs to change uh, in, a, in a widespread fashion? Um, two things. I do, I do think this question of fire and fire management fire you know fuels management and the role of livestock grazing i think i think there's a need for a more um careful look at the utility of livestock grazing for for fuels management it happens around here in the bay area it happens and nobody even bats an eye um you know the hills uh, the oakland hills are grazed by goats um 
in a very intensive way. They pay the goat herders to come and um, mm-hmm. have the goats eat the the grass so that uh, when the dry season rolls around, you don't have, you know, just terrifying fire risks in the hills. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of places in the West where livestock grazing has been cut back or even eliminated on the periphery of, of sprawling cities. Um sometimes because the rancher gets tired of dealing with the suburbanites and the recreationists and sometimes because the agency doesn't want to deal with the complaints of the of the suburbanites when they go hiking on the on the rangeland right um that may be part of why we're having such trouble managing fire risk on the on the on the wildland urban interface and maybe we need to look more carefully at that um the other one is is a more general uh lesson i think which is that um People have used rangelands as a kind of um, – they have projected onto rangelands their their aspirations and anxieties um, in, in really remarkable ways over the last hundred years or so, um, often with this kind of um, wishful thinking uh, that – you know, they they see a they see a piece of rangeland and they think this could be better. This could be done differently. Uh, often they they are inspired or excited about the opportunity just because, in fact, compared to other parts of the landscape, rangelands look enticingly available. Right? They they aren't very expensive compared to other kinds of land. Um, they're big. They mm-hmm. they look like there must be opportunities there to improve them or to mm-hmm. put them to some purpose that will somehow um, either make them a lot of money or solve some big problem. Um, right now, it's happening in, in areas like, you know, let's put lots of solar panels all over rangelands or let's put lots of windmills on rangelands. Um, and oftentimes, these ideas are so tantalizing to people that they um, they basically lose their sense of perspective and critical reasoning skills. Um, we know a lot more about rangelands than a lot of people realize. And a lot of people, um, when they discover rangelands, they get very excited about something and they don't realize that they are, uh, maybe reinventing the wheel is not quite the right term, but they are, they are repeating the, the sort of comedies and farces of the past. Um, this is happening right now in particular with respect to questions of um, rangeland soil carbon. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's something where we really, we need to be uh, what a little bit more sober and critical and um, realize that we may be doing this in part because all these aspirations are more difficult on other places, on other kinds of land. Right. Um mm-hmm. In other words, just as we have in the past imagined desertification as a way of rationalizing getting rid of the pastoralists and the nomads, um, we may be rationalizing rangeland soil carbon sequestration as a way of avoiding the uh, more difficult but also more effective ways that we might deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. Very good. If somebody wants to go buy your book, uh, where do you recommend that they purchase it? How is the easiest way to get a hold of it? Well, of course, we know what the easiest way is, right? Is you go, you go to Amazon <laughs> and you click once or twice and they send it to you and it arrives five minutes before you order it. Um, <laughs> uh, I would, Google knows. I would, I would love it if people bought the book at their local bookstore. Um, they can order it directly from the University of Chicago Press if they wish. Um, if 
if Amazon is the simplest way and the best way for people, I'm, I probably am, you know, yes, I've got my reservations about Amazon as well as anybody does. Um, but I'm not, I also would love to see people buy the book. So, uh, That's right. I'm in a compromised position, I'm afraid. Very good. Anything else that you would like to comment on about the book before we finish off here? Oh boy. Um, not, not really. Thank you so much for, for your kind words about it and the invitation to talk today. Um, I mean, Berkeley may seem like an unusual place for ranchers to get useful knowledge, but um, the range program here is actually uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest in the United States. And it has a storied history of um, actually generating many very mainstream ideas, as well as a number of not so mainstream ideas about rangelands. Um and the the fact that it's sociologists, I think, is is perhaps the more more interesting piece. Um, I think there's a growing recognition that, in fact, our environmental uh, problems and challenges have more to do with people than they have to do with uh, ecosystems and the and the biophysical sciences per se. And uh, the fact that we are able to uh, lead the way here in the study of the social dimensions of rangelands, I think, uh, continues our are very long, almost a century now since um, since Arthur Sampson was hired to teach range here at Berkeley. Um, we are carrying it on and we are proud to be a part of the rangeland community. Very good. Lynn Hunsinger converted me thoroughly. And so now it's a done deal. All right. Excellent. My guest today on the podcast was Dr. Nathan Sayre, and we will post links to some of the articles that, that were mentioned in this episode on the show notes website. Uh, Nathan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Tip. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona, and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.